Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. I'm Shreya Gupta, and today in discussion, we have Dr. Charles Yell and Magna Kashyap joining both from us from Philadelphia. Dr. Charles Yell hails from East Orange, New Jersey. He received his undergrad degree from Princeton University, followed by medical school from Johns Hopkins and general surgery residency from Johns Hopkins Hospital as well. He served as faculty at Johns Hopkins with his focus on pancreatic cancer, becoming the endowed chair there, as well as the John L. Cameron Professor of Elementary Tract Diseases. He then moved to Philadelphia in 2005. He was named the 8th Samuel D. Professor. He accepted the chairmanship of Department of Surgery at my alma mater, Jefferson, now Sydney Kimmel Medical College. You must have heard Dr. Yeo's name. He's a prolific writer. He serves on various editorial boards of journals and committees. He has personally performed over 1,500 Whipple procedures. He started doing pancreatic cancer research back in 91, and today he leads a large interdisciplinary team at Jefferson, making it a center of excellence in pancreatic cancer uh, at both clinical as well as research level. We're so very honored to have you on our podcast, Dr. Yeo. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for the invitation. We always like to start off our podcast by talking about what led you to surgery. Tell us a little bit about your journey. <laughs> well, um, I've told this story many times, but um, you know, I was privileged to be at, uh, at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, where I was exposed to amazing, amazing professors in pediatrics and medicine and surgery. And actually, as a junior medical student, I had uh, organized uh, letters to be written for me to apply in medicine, because at, th at that time, I really thought that the medical service that I'd been exposed to in Baltimore at Hopkins was really just superb. They took care of a lot of very interesting patients, patients from all over the world, et cetera. And then two things happened. Uh, number one... I had an opportunity to do a sub-internship at the old Lock Raven Veterans Administration Hospital, and I did that in surgery, and I just loved that one-month experience. I basically moved into the hospital there. We took care of very sick patients. We were running our own blood gases. We were mixing our own TPN. We had uh, twice-a-week clinics and saw many, many patients with many variable diseases. And, and so I got, and the, the chief residents, the, the Hopkins surgical chief residents that ran that service, I thought were, they were just absolutely outstanding. They, they knew everything. They could operate. They knew the medical care of these patients. They could um, approach the surgical care. So that's one thing that happened. I was exposed to um, really surgery at a very high level, very exciting. The second thing that happened was I did an advanced medical clerkship at Hopkins. And although it was a great, great experience, I realized that after two months on that advanced medical clerkship, that I had really learned how to take care of 
many different types of medical patients and their medical problems, and that it wasn't all that hard. Uh, we were taking care of diabetics and DKA. We gave them insulin and we, we hydrated them. We were taking care of asthmatics, and back then we didn't have very many medicines, so we, you know, we gave them theophylline and, and some nebulizer treatments, and we I learned the workup of uh, Delta MS, change of mental status, and I knew how to do that workup. And so I was looking at a future where I thought I wouldn't be that excited in the medical field and where I was very, very enthusiastic, and I thought there was a wealth of knowledge and technical skill to be gained in surgery. So I flipped from being a medical um, applicant to a surgical applicant, and I've never regretted that decision. Excuse me, that's great. Um, so you know, part of your training was with Dr. Cameron, and we actually had him on this podcast in its early days. Dr. Cameron was one of the first guests, and he came on to talk about Whipples, and so we're excited to talk to you and, and give an update on um, pancreatic cancer for our listeners. But how did he influence uh, your career path as far as going into surgical oncology and, you know, your expertise in pancreatic cancer now? So without a doubt, um Dr. John Cameron has been, you know, the most important person as far as a mentor in my career. Now, mind you, when I first started on the surgical house staff, uh, Dr. Cameron was a uh, uh, sort of a young faculty member. Um, he was uh, just about 10 years out of his residency. He was uh, NIH grant supported and we were not a Whipple Center at all. And uh, Dr. Cameron was very much the uh, uh, sort of the Renaissance general surgeon. He was doing uh, breast surgery and thyroid surgery and chest surgery, esophageal work. And we actually weren't doing that much pancreatic work uh, back then. This would be in the uh, late 70s or in sort of mid up to the mid 80s. And the chairman that really... Um, that fostered my career early on was John Cameron's predecessor, Dr. George Zeidema, who just had his 90th birthday. But uh, John was clearly the busiest general surgeon at Johns Hopkins. He was the classic academician in the sense that he was an excellent teacher. He lectured to the medical students. He ran Sunday school. Um, he was a, a constant attender of uh, surgical grand rounds in the M&M conference. And then he also uh, was working in the laboratory. He was a very busy surgeon. We were always looking for more OR time to do his cases. And so John was the one that really gave um, people like Mark Talamini and Keith Lillamo and myself the opportunity to train in a very exciting environment. And when John... Uh, was elevated to the chair. Uh, he succeeded George Zeidema. When John was elevated to the chair at, at, at Hopkins, I think the thing, the one move he made that was a brilliant move that really nucleated a group of uh, elementary track surgeons together, uh, John made one big move, and that was to recruit two people. So really it was two moves. Number one, he brought Henry Pitt uh, back uh, to uh, Baltimore to be a, a vice chair for him, and he brought Mike Zinner back 
to Baltimore again to be a vice chair for him. Mike had been in in, uh, in Brooklyn, and Henry had been out in uh, in L.A. at UCLA. So what he immediately had was himself as the chair and two very very much up and coming young faculty members in Henry and Mike Henry Pitt and Mike Zinner, and that really then set set the stage for tremendous academic opportunities for the uh, chief residents that were graduating. So after John had brought Henry Pitt and Mike Zinner um, back to Hopkins, um, I was looking for a job and uh, I had finished my clinical years. I had served as the what we called the Halstead ACS, the Halstead Assistant Chief of Service. Some other people would call it the Super Chief. This was the era really before fellowships were strong. And so uh, I interviewed at three or four places around the country. Keith Lillimo was finishing with me at the time. Keith interviewed a few places around the country. But John offered us the opportunity to stay at Hopkins and not have to move our families and work in what we thought was a very exciting environment, an environment that we were very comfortable in, an environment that really challenged us. And so um, he paired Keith Lillimo with Henry Pitt. He paired me with Mike Zinner. They were to be our senior mentors, if you will. And then he gave us the opportunity to uh, do uh, research, and we both were able to write grants. We were both fortunate to get NIH grants funded. Um, Myself, actually, at one point, I had two NIH grants. One was in small bowel transport, and the other was a large clinical grant Uh, studying uh, the translational uh, elements of pancreatic cancer and focusing on the molecular genetics of pancreatic cancer, which had really not been put on the map up till that point. So back in 1991, I actually went to John and I saw in a publication called the NIH Guide that uh, the NIH was looking for people to... um, to give money to to study pancreatic cancer. And at Hopkins, we had a wonderful group set up led by Bert Vogelstein and Ken Kinsler, who had really put the genetics of colorectal cancer on the map. And it seemed to me we could do something similar in the pancreas. So my first NIH grant that I was the PI on, I was really just a cheerleader. I was I was the coach, if you will, and I recruited people like Scott Kern, who was a very young molecular oncologist, Ralph Ruban, who was a very young pathologist, now the chair of pathology at Hopkins, Connie Griffin, who was a young cytogeneticist at the time, and several others to join me. And we we literally wrote this NIH grant in about two weeks because the deadline was very quick, and we were fortunate to get the lowest score in the country and get funded. And that was the first grant that Hopkins had received in the field of pancreatic carcinogenesis. This is around 1991. Obviously, they have been funded since, um, continuously since, and and the the research really took off after that. But so, I mean, I thank John for number one, you always are very, very um, thankful for your first job. Somebody's willing to pay you to do surgery and to give me an environment to work in, a very stimulating educational environment, and to work with some really talented people. 
And so what we were able to do was talk about pancreatic cancer and talk about the Whipple procedure and talk about pancreatectomy and then conceive of many, many different studies, both molecular genetic studies, but also clinical studies, randomized trials that would uh, try to make pancreatic cancer surgery safer in the long run. That's very interesting. I kind of want to piggyback on the uh, on your answer to all your NIH work and your first grant. Surgeon scientists are a dying breed, and we always ask, we are always interested in um, kind of learning about the experience as surgeon scientists. Um, what was your journey like? How did you um, convert Jefferson? to become this uh, center of excellence, not just for clinical work, but for pancreatic cancer research as well. So I understand, and it's it's very easy to be, um, uh, to feel the challenges of surgeon scientists. And, and you know, um, I, I, I understand that. Um, one of the things that I think we all need to recognize is that uh, a surgeon scientist is not a lone wolf. And uh, nowadays, it's all about building a team and recognizing the talents of others. And um, there's a great book written many years ago called, quote, Organizing Genius, end quote. And and a lot of what uh, is in that book, I've taken to heart over the years. I mean, you want to put people together who are smarter than you and who are driven. You want to have a, a culture of excellence and a culture of accomplishment. You want to focus on a problem that's meaningful, and you want to have be passionate about that problem. And then you want to bite off solutions in small, small steps. So um, from the successes, uh, from from what we were able to build at Hopkins, uh, which got um, transitioned over to a SPORE grant in pancreatic cancer, a special program of research excellence, which was headed for many years by Scott Kern, when I had the opportunity to come to Jefferson, um, obviously my passion was teaching and clinical clinical work, but my one of my other passions was pancreatic cancer. And so I made sure when I was uh, undergoing the negotiation process that I would have the opportunity to build a research program that could work in tandem with the clinical program. And probably one of the most important things I did was to recruit a young, incredibly smart, sort of renaissance man, talented researcher to come join me from Baltimore, um, to come to Philadelphia, to come to Jefferson. His name is Jonathan Brody. He's a PhD scientist, now NIH funded. Back then, he'd done a couple postdocs and was, uh, was looking for his first job. So I was able to convince Jonathan, and I never forget we sat down for dinner one time. We, we we had a lot of similar interests. He's a musician. I love music. He was a fan of the Maryland Terrapin basketball team. I had lived in Maryland for 30 years, so I too was a Maryland fan. Uh, he was a, he was an athlete, sort of a weekend athlete as as I had become. And so we sat down at dinner and we talked about what we needed to do what our biggest challenge was and what we thought was wrong about the textbooks that talked about pancreatic cancer. 
And, um, you know, we've learned now, and, and the term precision medicine is overused. And, and we talk, we've talked now about individualized cancer therapies. But back then, in 205, 206, this was really a burgeoning field. And we actually sat down and on a napkin, on a paper napkin at the at the dinner, we discussed how pancreatic cancer is not one disease and how back then gemcitabine had just been approved um, and how to think that one drug was going to somehow be the, the magical cure, the magical bullet for pancreatic cancer was, was clearly fallacious thinking. It was optimistic thinking. So we drew a little pie. It was actually around uh, the recruitment dinner was, was around Halloween and Thanksgiving. And we drew sort of a pumpkin pie out. And we said, what we need to do, we need to think about pancreatic cancer as as a pie and recognize that not every patient is going to respond to just one chemotherapeutic. Rather, we need to think of different slices of this pie, and we need to find, and back then we used the term, actually, actionable mutations. We needed to find the genetic code of every individual's cancer and then identify a drug that would be therapeutic for that individual. Well, think about where we've come now um, for many for many cancers, and of course we've added immunotherapy along the way. But think about how that was sort of a you know I would say a, a prophetic discussion, because now that's very much what we do. We don't rely upon standard regimens; rather, we search for the individual patients' tumors actionable mutations. And that leads us perfectly into our dissection of the day, uh, where we're going to delve a lot deeper into pancreatic adenocarcinomas, the diagnosis and management. So first of all, do you, can you give us kind of a, a brief summary of your management? Walk us through how you uh, diagnose and how you make that decision whether to operate or not on a patient who, let's just keep it simple here, come presents with a mass at the head of the pancreas. You know, first off, I think anybody that treats pancreatic cancer and patients needs to be an optimist. It's very easy to uh, uh, kind of get lured into some of the the dismal outcomes, and and I think I've learned over years to be very optimistic. Um, we uh, obviously work with the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network and other advocacy groups, and. You know, one of the big words is hope, H-O-P-E, hope. So when you meet a patient with pancreatic cancer and you meet their family, you have to realize that they're sitting in your office and they are scared. They, they've Many of them have looked online and um, they, they know, many of them know the, the grim details. They also think that... Uh, when they turned yellow last week, that the tumor started the day before they turned yellow. That, that you know they look at this as an acute problem when in fact we know that for tumors to get to the size where they obstruct the biliary tree and cause symptoms, you know they've been there for a long time. So patients and families think of this as an, a short-term problem, and they they're looking for a short-term solution. So. Part of it goes into educating them about 
the natural history and exponential growth curves and the fact that this didn't just start last week, but that uh, you're here to help them. And typically looking at the scans, you know, obviously we collect the records in advance. We uh, try to have the images sent to us in advance and get uploaded. So one of the, one of the most important thing, things I think we can do is sit down with the patients and show them their images. We've just published a little paper about this in the Journal of Pancreatic Cancer. Surgeon-led review of imaging. It's because most Americans don't know they even have a pancreas. And, and that's okay. We educate them about that. And we show them the anatomy. And we show it both in illustrated form, in a little book we give them, a book that comes actually from the Lusgarten Foundation called Understanding Pancreatic Cancer. And we review where the bile duct is, where the pancreatic duct is, where the duodenum is, show it to them on CT scan or MR scan, and then show them what's going to, you know, what would typically be resected. And then you, ha- I think, then you're obligated to have a very serious discussion with the patient about what their options are. And in a nutshell, I think they have three options. Many of the patients that come to us have already seen a gastroenterologist. Many have already seen an oncologist. You know, we're a tertiary referral center. Many of them already have a stent in place, <clears throat> a biliary stent either a plastic biliary endoprosthesis or a metallic biliary endoprosthesis. So one, one of their options is to do nothing further. Um, you know, they've been treated for their jaundice, their itching, their pruritus typically is better. Their skin is returning to normal color. Their urine has changed now from the tea-colored urine that they noticed back to normal. So in essence, symptomatically, many of them are much improved. And one option for them, which is a no-treatment option, is to do nothing further. Now, that's not the right option for many patients, you know, but it is for some. Uh, we see patients nearly every week that come to us they have terrible comorbidities. They have many other diseases. They may be in a wheelchair. They may be on home oxygen. They may be non-ambulatory. And so for some of those people, for some of those people, um, just simple biliary stenting and then a discussion of their future may be appropriate. <clears throat> for, the, for the majority of people we see, that's not the path to take. That's not the right path to take. They're vigorous. They're younger, perhaps chronologically younger, they're active, they have a good performance status. And then I think you're obligated to discuss with them essentially two paths. The first treatment path would be a surgery first approach, removing the tumor, um, allowing them to recover from a Whipple operation, and then discussing with them participation in post-operative adjuvant, either chemotherapy or chemoradiation therapy, um, always, always stressing the opportunity to participate in clinical trials. The clinical trials can be informed by the uh, genetics of the resected tumor. So that's one pathway. That's the surgery-first approach. It's been around a long time. And I think we're also obligated to talk about, you know, the neoadjuvant strategy. Um, and there are some data 
They're not perfect data, but there's some data that would suggest that neoadjuvant therapy has advantages even in patients who have apparently resectable disease, that is disease without dissemination and disease that does not touch the visceral vessels, the SMV, the portal vein, the SMA, the celiac axis, et cetera. So we do have that discussion with patients. We give them we, we educate them and inform them about their opportunities. Um, most patients that uh, that we treat with neoadjuvant therapy have either locally advanced disease or borderline resectable disease. And I would stress for your listeners that um, it's incredibly important that the CT images, the MR images, be reviewed personally by the operating surgeon oftentimes with a skilled pancreatic radiologist um, uh, at hand, you know, go over those images carefully because uh, it is imperative that the decisions that are made are made both based upon a correct reading of the images. And, you know, we all know that um, patients get CT scans on the outside, uh, and, and this is in no way being critical, but, um, those scans are often not read, read correctly. Things are missed. Uh, replaced right hepatic arteries are, are not identified. Sometimes it's the scan's not ideal. Sometimes the uh, radiologist, you know, may be reading a batch of films and just doesn't spend the time going over, um, going over the anatomy. So very important that the images be correctly uh, reviewed. But I think those are the three things: either no treatment surgery first or then, uh, you know, a neoadjuvant approach. And, you know, this is this is a, a discussion that takes a long time. There are other people that should be part of the discussion. Um, we do have a multidisciplinary approach. I uh, must say not everybody who's already been to two or three other multidisciplinary um, committees at other places wants to go through a, another multidisciplinary discussion. Some patients uh, come and are, are very much focused on having the tumor removed. That was an excellent overview. I have two follow-up questions on all of that that you uh, just described. So first of all, you talked about the biliary stenting and how most patients already come in with it. Um, but, you know, it's not necessarily required in all patients, though I, I believe is, aren't the newer studies saying that it improves outcomes when patients don't have jaundice. So um, just if you could talk a little bit more about the decision to perform biliary stenting. And then the second question regards to the neoadjuvant chemo. Um, so I think the standard is typically if you're doing neoadjuvant that you do fulfirinox. And if you're doing adjuvant chemo that you use gemcitabine, um, first of all, you can correct me if that's my incorrect understanding. But second of all, can you talk about, because I've actually looked this up before, why is it that we choose the fulfirinox for neoadjuvant and why is it that we choose the gemcitabine for adjuvant? Yeah. So let's, let's focus first on the biliary stenting issue. Issue has been around a long, long time. There have been many studies that have looked at this, both retrospectively and in prospective randomized settings. And, um, you know, I think for those individuals that are on the front line and, and perhaps aren't aren't in an ivory tower and uh, where most of the patients come for second or third opinion, um, you're faced with the issue of a patient who has a resectable lesion 
who's a good surgical candidate, young, few comorbidities. And so I think it's entirely appropriate if the patient chooses a surgery-first approach, if they're not deeply jaundiced and don't have coagulopathy associated with that. And we see patients like this. They they often are admitted to, to our medical service and then we're consulted on them. Those patients can be taken to the operating room and be resected safely. There's no question about that in, in hands of skilled pancreatic surgeons, surgical oncologists, HPB surgeons, whatever category you put yourself in. So I, there is no um, no reason to not offer. That's a double negative. Sorry, there. It's completely appropriate to offer resection to people who may have, you know, Billy Rubin's in the five eight range, whose alkaline phosphatase is five hundred to eight hundred, who uh, they can be safely resected. It is a little tricky at surgery because the tissue planes are not as well visualized. And one of the subtleties of operating on patients that have hyperbilirubinemia is the portal vein looks a little bit yellow. And the uh, tissues in the hepatoduodenal ligament look a little bit yellow, and it can be actually more difficult to uh, sort out um, the hepatic artery and the SMV portal vein and the biliary tree, so you can get tricked. So you, you must be very vigilant there. But but certainly, it, it's not true that everybody needs a biliary stent before they get operated on. And the data say that people that are stented do have a higher incidence of bactabilia. And if you don't control the the uh, the bile with a, some sort of a non-crushing clamp when you divide the bile duct. Uh, there is an increased risk of intrabominal uh, sepsis postoperatively if you're allowing contaminated bile to uh, contaminate your field for hour after hour. So I think that's the issue on the uh, on the stenting. We we and others have tried to, uh, and we actually had an open randomized trial um, trying to randomize people with bilirubins over ten to a stenting or immediate surgery. And it just turned out the number of patients we saw in our setting were so small that we would have had to run the trial for hundreds of years. So that was not, so we had to close that trial. It's still, it would still be fascinating if multiple institutions could get together, but I think this is a, a question that's going to be hard to answer. So that's that's the stenting issue. You know, I think on the Neoadjuvant side, there's a lot of exciting things, and uh, you know you want to give credit to the folks at the MD Anderson, to the folks at Fox Chase, to many other places who've really uh, underscored um, at least the rationale for a neoadjuvant approach. And uh, you know there, there, there's many key elements of that, but the, the simple way I look at it is that uh, for most patients, when they present with a resectable or borderline or even locally advanced pancreatic cancer, the tumor's been there for many, many months. And uh, the opportunity for that tumor to disseminate has, has existed. And while the, uh, the host immune system, as we know, clears circulating tumor cells in many patients, it's not 100% successful. And, you know, we all have the stories of patients that had a small little pancreatic tumor um, their scans all look negative. You do a beautiful operation. They recover from that operation. They spend less than a week in the hospital, and six months later, they have disseminated disease 
large liver mets, pulmonary metastases, whatever. It's so disappointing, and you know, it's likely that that tumor had disseminated before. So the rationale for neoadjuvant, I think, is sound, and it's not not been definitively proven. Even the the recent studies out of the Netherlands, uh, they're not perfect studies. The question is, what's the right regimen? Now, you know, I think people have talked about fulfirinox for a long time, and it's a fairly toxic regimen. Um, make no mistake, it was not specifically designed to be used, um, you know, for individualized, personalized pancreatic adenocarcinoma therapy. Um, you know, it. it, it People didn't didn't sit down and say, well, we're going to put together the best three, four drugs uh, and come up with this regimen, come up with this cocktail. And nor is gemcitabine plus abraxane, which many people use as an alternative, less toxic neoadjuvant regimen, um, nor, nor is that necessarily specifically focused on pancreatic cancer. You know, uh, gemcitabine is not a very powerful drug in, in, for most patients with pancreatic cancer. And, uh, you know, albuminated paclitaxel or nabpaclitaxel certainly is, uh, you know, not necessarily a very powerful drug. So I would say, I would hope that 10 years from now, when we look back upon this era and, and we've made better strides, we're going to just be, you know, kind of kicking ourselves and saying, can you, do you remember when, you know, we were giving fulfirinox to patients with pancreatic cancer because I would hope that we'd be so much further along 10 years from now that the opportunity to give personalized, targeted therapies to patients after we discover their individual uh, genetic composition of their tumors and the, the heterogeneity that goes into the tumors, that, that we'll, we'll just we'll look back upon these eras thinking of them sort of as the dark ages. Moving on to something that we we deal as surgical residents, 1,500 Whipples and counting, um, you must have a very precise operative approach. And I'm just wondering if you could share with our uh, listeners what is and walk us through your uh, operative approach for a Whipple. Are there a number of nodes that you need to resect? Are there um, critical portions of the surgery where you take some um, extra measures of, uh, like you were talking about, you know, preventing biliary uh, leak for hours during the operation. Um, any pearls of wisdom for our surgical residents? Well, sure. Let me. Um, I mean, let me just say what an honor it's been, though, to be entrusted by patients to, you know, have the opportunity to do uh, the operations I've done. It's it's really sort of daunting to think that that many patients uh, put their trust in me. But, um, you know, I would say um, I, I've had the opportunity to personally do uh, a good number of Whipples. And I've also been in conferences and scrubbed with other people. Uh, so I've seen even more than that. And uh, in my mind, for, for the, from the resident standpoint, I just think the Whipple operation is such an amazing opportunity uh, for residents, for fellows, for, for junior faculty to get very comfortable in, in an operative setting. I think of the operation as being uh, 
really two different operations. There's the extirpative phase, and then there's the reconstructive phase. And um, obviously, you get to operate on the GI tract. There's wonderful physiology. But you also, in the extirpative phase, have to really know your anatomy. And, and in many senses, you're uh, acting like a vascular surgeon because you have to make sure that you are uh, identifying uh, key blood vessels that should not be injured. You know, by that I mean the common hepatic artery, the proper hepatic artery. It, it's fascinating to me over the years that, you know, people think of the Whipple operation as this big deal operation, and it is. But if you think about it, the largest uh, largest artery that you sacrifice during the Whipple operation is the gastroduodenal artery. So that's usually not a very big artery. Um, the other thing about the extra, there are many things about the extirpative phase, but, you know, uh, the cochra maneuver is a magical maneuver, lifting the pancreas and, uh, and duodenum out of the retroperitoneum, going right down onto the vena cava. Obviously, before you even start the Whipple, a thorough exploration of the abdomen, making sure that there's no dissemination, checking the liver, checking the peritoneal surfaces looking down at the ligament of trites and making sure that there's not mischief uh, tumor uh, at the ligament of trites. Um, we typically do the pylorus preserving operation. Um, there's never been any proof in my mind that uh, doing the old classic Whipple has any advantage when it comes to oncologic clearance. Um, so we typically um, will preserve uh, the, uh, the first part of the duodenum. I like to divide the duodenum at least two, if not three or four centimeters beyond the pylorus to leave an ample cuff of duodenum. I think some of the DGE that people see after the uh, PPPD, after the Whipple, the, after the mini Whipple, is related to just getting too close to the uh, to the pylorus. I'll say I, I don't. I've probably never done the operation the same. Um, it, it, there's no one way to do it. I, I recognize that when we write about it, we talk about various steps, but many times you have to change the sequence of the operation. And I always go by the, by the adage, you know, you do the easy parts first and you leave the hardest part for last. And a good example would be if you have a tumor that is uh, right adjacent to the common hepatic artery, the proper hepatic, and the GDA, and you're struggling getting control of the GDA. Well, what you don't want to do is injure either the common hepatic or the proper hepatic early in the case when you're not really ready to mobilize things and, and perhaps do a vascular resection and put it back together. So, you know, if that's a, if you're in that scenario, do everything else first. Divide the bile duct and divide the jejunum and flip the duodeno-jejunum jejunal junction over to the right side and do your coker and divide the gland and then leave that for the last so that the, that's the hardest part of that particular operation. You leave that for last so you're ready to, to do a, a dissection and a vascular reconstruction. Um, as far as some other little tips and hints along the way, you know, you never take the gastroduodenal artery without first test clamping it. Uh, because um, it, I can tell you that the issue of celiac artery stenosis or 
median arcuate ligament problems uh, is very, very real. And, and patients can suffer terrible hepatic ischemia and infarction uh, if you're if you don't recognize uh, that they have either an MAL or a celiac artery occlusion, and that can be deadly. Uh, and you, you don't want to get yourself in the position where you injure that, where, where you lose hepatic inflow, and have hours and hours to go before you can restore it. I think it's very important to dissect right on the portal vein, right on the SMV, and we make it a practice to go down and dissect right on the SMA. And so it's a bit of a tedious dissection uh, whenever we have the specimen nearly out and we're we're left with um, uh, sort of the final stages, taking what's called the mesopancreas. Um, in most of my patients, um, uh, I live in Philadelphia. Um, Cheesesteak is a popular uh, food in Philadelphia. I don't operate on many patients that have BMIs of 18, 19, 20, or 21. And um, I've been over to China and Japan and seen the uh, the SMA first approach, but that's very difficult on uh, some people that are uh, carrying extra weight. You know, many of our patients have BMIs of 30, 35, 40, and doing that uh, SMA first approach is very, very hard. So that's the extirpative phase, and then the reconstructive phase. You know, it's it, it really it, it's an amazing opportunity to do three anastomoses. Every one of those anastomoses is different. They all have different risks. Great opportunity for the residents to get comfortable um, suturing. Um, my particular preference uh, for the pancreaticojejunostomy has been a uh, sort of a limited invagination. Uh, I do a two-layer PJ uh, with the outer layer being silk and the inner layer now being 3.0 PDS. But I don't open the jejunotomy very far. Um, and you can oftentimes invaginate a uh, even a, a thick gland into a very small jejunotomy. Um, and I do use a, I use a temporary pancreatic duct stent, which I pull out whenever I do my HJ. You know, clearly, the, uh, the part of the operation that you need to focus your attention on after you've done the extirpative phase is that PJ, because that really is what drives postoperative complications. Uh, I will admit that um, I typically take a little break um, during uh, the time right before I do the PJ. You know, I think it's nice to get the extirpative phase done. I don't think any surgeon should stand for six hours in a row in the OR or eight hours in a row in the OR. So um, after I do the extirpative phase, I typically put my drains in. I still drain uh, Whipples. I put one drain on the right, one drain on the left, and um, I take a little break. The, the fellow or the chief resident sews the drains in place, and then we come back, and I feel like I'm refreshed and I'm ready to approach that PJ because, as I say, that's what really drives complications. After we do the PJ, we do the HJ, do that with 5-OPDS interrupted. Um, I always use a stent across the HJ. I, I cut a T-tube. I make it into an I-tube, and I, I put a part of the T-tube up into the bile duct. I leave the other part in the jejunum. And as I said, I stent my PJ, but I remove the pancreatic duct stent when I make my jejunotomy for the HJ, and I remove my 
T-tube, what I call my I-tube when I do my DJ. So although I always sew my PJ and my HJ over a stent, and I think it's helpful for the residents to have that stent in place, it's helpful for me to see their stitches go in. And then when I when I can pull out the pancreas stent and when I can pull out the uh, HJ stent smoothly, I know that we haven't caught the back row. So it, it's a nice little trick that I've used over the years. And then we typically have gotten away from doing the DJ, the duodeno jejunostomy, adjacent uh, to the uh, biliopancreatic anastomoses. Uh, rather, we um, typically now do the DJ through a separate rent in the left-sided mesocolon, and we make it so that the stomach is pulled well down through the mesocolon, even though we're doing a duodeno jejunostomy. Um, I like doing that because if you get a PJ leak or if you get an HJ leak, if you have your duodeno jejunostomy uh, somewhat downstream, you don't have a lot of reflux there. And we found that our PJ leaks and our HJ leaks are, are, are really much easier to manage and uh, tend to heal quicker. So I, at least for myself, I do a retrocolic duodeno jejunostomy, hand sew it. And then I'm a bit of a dinosaur. I, I really don't use any uh, any uh, you know energy devices. Everything's tied. I think the Whipple operation is a great opportunity for the residents and fellows to really practice one-handed, two-handed knot tying down deep in a hole. And I think that duodeno jejunostomy is a great opportunity for people to to practice doing hand-sewn GI anastomoses. Uh, now we move on to our next segment, which we call Tips and Tricks. Um, and the topic we chose for you, Dr. Yo, is pancreatic leaks. Um, one of the one of the more challenging morbidities to deal with um, after a Whipple surgery. What are some of the precautions, either preoperative or perioperative uh, interventions that you use um, in cases where you do think that patients are at a higher risk of pancreatic leaks? Pancreatic leaks after the Whipple. So it's really a failure of healing of the pancreatic ojejunostomy. And I think it should be considered that. So this POPF, postoperative pancreatic fistula, is really a pancreatic anastomotic leak typically. And um, it's important to recognize a few things. Number one, uh, hard and firm glands with large pancreatic ducts, um, those are very low-risk uh, glands. Now, yes, um, Chuck Vollmer at Penn and others have, you know, you have your pancreatic fistula risk calculator, but some of these things are, are, are actually very intuitive. When the gland holds sutures well and the patient doesn't have dramatic postoperative hyperamylasemia, um, that's a very low-risk gland. Uh, it, it, it's very uncommon for a gland such as that to leak. The way I look, uh, I think about pancreatic leaks is there's this tri this leak triad. There's three things that you notice during the surgery, and you can predict preoperatively, but certainly you notice during the surgery. Number one, the pancreatic texture is normal. And a normal pancreatic texture is, uh, you know, soft. It's uh, it's a little bit like jello in some senses. So you have a very soft texture. You typically have a very small pancreatic duct, which can at times actually be hard to identify. And then in combination with that, you often have a 
small, thin-walled bile duct. So in my mind, that's the big three. And the big three is a setup for either a PJ leak or an HJ leak. So what do you do specifically in that scenario? Well, number one, you're far more vigilant. You and you're really you up the ante. You're detail oriented and doing the anastomosis. You mobilize that pancreas a little bit more so you get the pancreatic neck and body up off of the splenic vein. I I really try to focus on finding the pancreatic duct, and sometimes it can be difficult. But I I, I must say, um, 99 times out of 100, you can find it. You may have to use a little Kittner dissector. You may have to scrape off some of the uh, char from the electrocautery if you use the electrocautery to uh, to divide the gland. But I think it's important to find that duct, and I always try to cannulate it first with a little uh, lacrimal duct probe, then maybe with a number two Bakes dilator, and then we always have in the room three different sizes of uh, of pediatric feeding tubes. The smallest uh, size is a 3.5. We also have a 5 and an 8 in the room. So I like to put a little stent in that pancreatic duct so I see where that duct is. And then very cautiously put your back row of sutures in. We do it in horizontal mattress fashion. You have to tie them very carefully. Open a very small jejunotomy and then uh, put the stent in that jejunotomy and then do your the inner layer, um, and, and I do, as I said, I do an invagination technique, uh, use 3O or sometimes even 4O PDS, and I run and lock the back row, and then I, you can't do that on the front row, and then we do an outer layer of silk. We really try to recognize that a pancreas like that is not capable of rolling at all. That pancreas can't move. So, I always talk about doing, it's like doing a Nissen. You're trying to wrap the jejunum. You want to create your silk sutures so that you wrap the jejunum around the pancreas about a centimeter away from the true anastomosis. And, and even after you've done your PJ, you want to be very careful how well you, uh, me, you want to be very careful how you move the tissues adjacent to the pancreas. You don't want to rip. You don't want to pull things. So when you go up and do your hepaticojejunostomy, you don't want to disrupt your PJ at all. And then very important when you do the HJ in this setting, that that tiny, thin-walled bile duct must be respected. Sometimes it only takes perhaps six or eight sutures to do that hepaticojejunostomy. You make a very small jejunotomy. You, um, you do the back row, uh, typically with 5-0 or sometimes even 6-0 PDS. Tie those knots down. We leave the knots on the inside except on the corners. And then uh, put put your T-tube through. You know, you may have to put an 8 T-tube. You may have to put a 10 T-tube. When I say put it through, I mean just put it through the anastomosis. Feed, feed about 2 centimeters up into the bile duct. Feed the rest of the of the T-tube, which you cut into an eye, so it's really an eye tube. Feed the rest of that eye tube downstream, and then do your anterior row using 5-0 or 6-0 PDS. And, and make sure that as, when you're watching this, when you're doing this as a resident, that you have excellent needle tip control. 
and that your pronation and supination on your needle driver is perfect. And when you pick the needle up in the tissue that you pick it up on the curve of the needle, you don't want to rip that bile duct. Those bile ducts are very easy to tear. And then when you tie your knots, tie your knots down snugly, but don't over-tie them. And then always smart to irrigate right at that point. Irrigate with some, um, you know, bibiotic solution or saline, and then put a little sponge, put a little four by four sponge around the PJ and around the HJ and leave it there when you're going down to do your duodeno jejunostomy and then come back 15, 20 minutes later and check that sponge. You know, if you see bile staining on that sponge, um, it means that your anastomosis has already started to leak. So identify that leak and, and repair it. And then the last thing I would say as far as that difficult PJ, um, the way we do our duodeno jejunostomy, retrocolic and downstream, <clears throat> we mobilize the stomach and we pull the stomach down through the mesocolon. Well, what that means is you usually have some momentum. You have some momentum from the right side of the gastrocolic ligament. and You have the lesser curvature of the stomach. I don't like being able to look down into the operative wound and see that PJ uncovered and just close the fascia and close the skin. I like to cover that. I like to bring either part of the falciform ligament or part of the, that omentum down over um, so that if there is a leak, the leak is contained and uh, the leak doesn't necessarily become a free leak into the upper abdomen. So it, a lot of this is personal preference. A lot of this is what some people might consider, uh, quote, voodoo, end, end quote. But uh, I think a deep respect for that high-risk uh, PJ is very important. At times, instead of just putting one drain down to the PJ, we'll put two. We'll put one superior and one inferior. Because um, I, I believe that if you can control that fistula, um, if it does leak, that you're in much better shape than having a free uh, free leak into the into the abdomen. So I'm a drainer. I'm not a Whipple no drainer. Um, although I, I will admit that at times I only put one drain, but most times we put two. And it's very uncommon, quite honestly. It's very uncommon to be surprised that your pancreatic jejunostomy has leaked. It's very uncommon. We have a pathway here at Jefferson called the Warp 5 pathway, the Whipple Accelerated Recovery Pathway. It's a five-day discharge pathway. We put most of our most of our Whipple patients on that pathway. We did the study. We presented it um, a few months ago at the Pancreas Club, and we're going to present sort of the, the larger outcomes at the Southern Surgical in, a, in another couple months, actually about six weeks. This Whipple Accelerated Recovery Pathway, the, the, the five-day pathway, the first author is Harish Lavu, uh, my section chief of HPB. <clears throat> we put patients on that pathway targeting hospital discharge on day five. And although the initial study that we did was focused on only patients with low-risk glands, we've now expanded that to higher-risk glands. And uh, pretty much all the Whipples we do now are on our WARP-5 pathway. And uh, it's been very successful. One follow-up question there, Dr. Yeo. Any experience at Jefferson with pasiriotide? So uh, we don't use uh, pasiriotide. We don't use octreotide. We don't, we don't use any of, those, uh, any of those drugs in a uh, prophylactic setting. 
you know, we, uh, I will admit that I'm biased. Uh, we did one of the earliest studies of octreotide uh, many years ago as an RCT. And um, I've had the opportunity to review a lot of the meta-analyses my personal interpretation of the meta-analyses and of the RCTs done on all of the somatostatin analogs is that uh, they are not beneficial. They're not beneficial uh, in a prophylactic setting. And one of the things I've said over time is that I don't think we can expect a drug to be the savior of... um, and I hate to say it this way, but I don't expect a drug to be the savior of um, technically imperfect pancreatic surgery. This was just an amazing overview. Um, And you actually predicted a lot of our follow-up questions before we even asked them. So you can tell that you have much experience with this. Um, So our final segment is the final five, where uh, we ask you a few questions for our listeners to get to know you a little bit more personally, uh, a little bit of outside of medicine. So our first question is, um, can you name someone? I know you talked about Dr. Cameron and um, others, but is there somebody who's outside of medicine who was influential on your life and career? Well, I mean, obviously, I would uh, give credit to my my wonderful parents, neither of whom um, went to college, but they, I think, uh, steered me in the right direction. My uh, the people that I work with in Boy Scouts and in my church were very important. I had a leadership role in the Boy Scouts as a young man, and I had a leadership role in in my Greek Orthodox church. Um, I was very fortunate to have some wonderful teachers and mentors, both in high school, college, and medical school, and uh, I would credit them. And then, uh, you know, I was lucky enough to be involved with sports as, as a young young man, and so my coaches in soccer and basketball and and rugby were we're all very you know amazing people for me. And then I've been married to an absolutely beautiful woman for the, nearly the last uh, it's twenty coming on twenty nine years. And so my wife Terry's been incredibly important uh, for me as well. All right, moving on to our next question: Do you have a favorite movie? Do I have a favorite movie? Yeah, or a genre? M O V I E movie. Um, my, my movie, uh, my, uh, so my wife and I go to movies frequently, um, you know, looking back in time, you know, I, I must say that, um, certain movies really touched me. There's a wonderful movie about World War One called Gallipoli. It's just an absolutely amazing movie of courage, um, amongst the, the Australians as they were attacking, um, you know, I, I must say in college, um, having spent the wonderful years at, at Princeton, right when uh, that movie Animal House came out, I, you know, Animal House still makes me laugh. I think there's some some, some great scenes in Animal House. It's, it's, it's you know, obviously very sort of um, fraternity oriented, but there's some, some fun scenes there. Um, you know, way back when movies like American Graffiti and... Um, you know, th- those were sort of fun movies. Uh, have a great interest in music as well. So, um, and recently there have been some amazing uh, movies that have really uh, 
have, have come out that have touched me. Movies like Black Klansman and um, you know, this is an interesting time in America. That it definitely is. Um, so two-part question. Do you listen to music in the operating room? And either way, what would we find on your iPod? Yeah, so I'm a big music listener in the OR. I, I like, uh, uh, I, I'm, I'm really a rock and roll. I'm sort of a classic rock and roll guy as well as country. I have uh, uh, many thousands of CDs. I still order CDs, and I have a lot of vinyl. I have about 12 feet of vinyl records, uh, which I still listen to at home. I have two iPods, two two iPods, um, one in my office here, literally six feet from where I'm talking to you from, and the other I have in, in the OR. And uh, so, and it varies. Uh, we'll 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 play classic rock i'll put it on on mix uh, many times i'll ask the nurses in the room what they want to listen to some nurses like you know like the stones and the beach boys and the beatles some some of the some of the folks like uh country music uh, i'm not a rap guy and um i like classical music in in small small uh, portions I know your love for basketball, but if you were to compete in Olympics, uh, winter or summer, what event would you uh, want to be want to do? Well, you, you know that question hurts me to the core because um, it's a great question. And growing up as a young man um, in high school, junior high, high school, uh, playing AAU, playing. Um, I, I really enjoyed playing both soccer and basketball. Those were really my uh, my sports, and um, I'm, I'm so I'm so pleased to see how soccer has spread even more and more uh, internationally. And I um, I love soccer, but basketball is my was my true love. And when I when I pictured myself in college, I pictured myself as a college basketball player, and um, I was fortunate to get a couple. Uh, scholarship offers to play at uh, D1 schools, um, but I really wanted to be the next Bill Bradley. Bill Bradley was my hero. I grew up in the north part of New Jersey, and on TV in 64 and 65, they showed the, the Princeton basketball team playing, and of course, the Olympics in 64, Bill was a great player, and then he did his Rhodes Scholar and came back and got drafted by the New York Knickerbockers. So in, in high school, um, I, I wanted to be the next Bill Bradley. Now, sadly, I was nowhere near as good as Bill Bradley. I stopped growing at 6'2". I desperately wanted to get to 6'6". Didn't happen. And my skill set was just, I just didn't have it. I just didn't have the talent. But if you ask me, I would have loved, loved to have been a college basketball player. I wasn't good enough, and I would have loved to play in the Olympics. I wasn't good enough for either one of those things. And I saw that my freshman year in uh, in college, and I recognized that uh, it was probably more important to do my biology and chemistry and do well on that and go to the labs and focus on my academics. And that's why I switched to rugby, which only practiced twice a week and had a game on Saturday. And that was more manageable. But uh, b basketball would have been my love.
So our final question, the final five here. Uh, right now, if we were to grab your white coat, what would we find in the pockets, on the lapel, anywhere on your white coat? So my white coat, uh, on one lapel is a uh, little pin from the Princeton Varsity Club because we only I only live now 45 minutes from my alma mater, so I get to go to some athletic events. So I'm proud of being a Princeton grad. On the other lapel is a, uh, a, a purple pin for pancreas. It comes from the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network. And uh, so it's my reminder of what, what I do, uh, you know, three days a week is charge into the OR and try to help people with pancreas tumors. And then in the pockets, I'm a little old-fashioned. I still carry a stethoscope in one pocket. Um, it's not a fancy stethoscope. I've had it for many years. And on the other pocket, I have um, some little cheat sheets, essentially. I have some of my templates for my operations. I've templated most of the op notes. I have a little uh, container that has some of my uh, business cards, which I give out uh, to patients. The coolest thing about my business card is that on one side it has all the information, but on the back side it has a, pi a picture of the pancreas. That's awesome. Dr. Yao, thank you so much for joining us. This was uh, an amazing informative podcast and we appreciate you taking time from your busy schedule. Yeah, well, thank, thank you guys. Until next time, dominate the day.